Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Like newborn infants, long for the pure, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If needed, um, you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy good, um, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am lying in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honour is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders reject has become the cornerstone, and a stone for stumbling, and a rock of offence. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to, um, to do. But you, a, cho- a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies um, of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvellous light. You were Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Brilliant. Am I on? Yes, I am. Great. Good morning. Um, as Stephen mentioned, my name is, is Keegan, and it is my privilege to be here and uh, be speaking to you this morning. And I'm married to Hannah, and we have a one-and-a-half-year-old son called Benjamin. And I was standing here in worship, and I saw him over there kind of dancing away, and I thought, it's amazing. He hasn't, he hasn't ever done that before, so he must be picking up some of his mum's uh, dance moves. So you can congratulate her when she comes back a little later. Um, but welcome to Westminster Chapel, and if you're new here, we love having, having visitors, um, and so thank you for joining us. Now, it really is my privilege to be able to speak to us this weekend on the King's Coronation Weekend. And you might have noticed um, yesterday that Justin Welby, when he kicked everything off, spoke about how this was a time when the King was being set apart or consecrated for this act of service to the UK and the territories beyond. And in the same way, we're going to look at a little bit this morning what it means for us to be the people of God who have been set apart for a life of service and worship to God. And that's how Peter ends his, this bit of scripture, right? He says, "You once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And so he was writing that letter to a people of God in an area which was called Asia Minor in about 60 AD, who were at that point in time trying to figure out their identity as the people of God. They were Greeks and Romans who had now become Christians and were beginning to suffer the persecution from their Greek and Roman neighbors. And so he was writing to encourage them and to remind them of what it means to be God's people. And for me personally, this is a topic I'm very passionate about. Um, In 2012, when I finished my undergraduate degree, I took a year off and volunteered at a church 
wasn't really a year off, I guess, but I volunteered for a year. And um, lived on a diet of mostly uh, lentils and rice. But um, in that time of serving and serving God's people in His church, it transformed the way that I think about what it means for us to be a church, to do church. And I've grown a deep love and passion for the people of God. And so I hope that this morning as I share, you'll catch a heart of, uh, for some of that and, and feel really encouraged. And I'm going to particularly pick up on two illustrations that Peter mentions in that reading. The first, he says that as we come, as we gather together as a corporate, we are being built up into firstly a spiritual house and secondly a holy priesthood. So a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. John Calvin, who is a great uh, French theologian and reformer, talks about this as the double honor of us being a church, that we are both of these things. And so we're going to unpack those. And so I've called this or titled this sermon this morning, Our Double Honor in Exile. As we are in exile, as the people of God, trying to figure out what it means, there is this amazing honor and blessing which has been bestowed on us by God and His grace and His goodness. And if you're not yet a Christian or wouldn't consider yourself a Christ follower and you're here looking in, I'd love to just encourage you to kind of come along with this journey. I'm going to be speaking a lot about the church, but I hope that as I do that, you will realize and see some of the kindness and goodness of God. So before we get into it, let me pray for us, um, and then we will take on these two topics. Father, thank you for your teaching and your word, your scripture, which has all authority. And Father, thank you for the fact that you are here with us now. And so I pray that as I share, Lord, would these words be your words, Father, would you really speak to us and enlighten and aliven our hearts, quicken them to what it means to be the people of God. Amen. Amen. Brilliant. So let's get into this first um, idea of us being a spiritual house. So Peter is picking up on an Old Testament idea where the people of God would come to the temple because that's where the presence of God dwelt. And so Peter is saying, under the New Covenant or in the New Testament, when we as Christians have put our faith and our trust in Christ, we no longer need to go to a temple, but we are becoming a spiritual house and the temple of God. Now, if you asked an ancient Jew or Israelite what the most important place on earth was, they would have said to you, the temple in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem. That was the most important place. It was sacred for them. It was the place where they would go, where there would be priests who would be the mediators between them and God, where they could offer praise and thanksgiving to God. And so that was the most important place on earth for them. And you think about all the pilgrimages that have happened of people going to go to the temple. Why? Because they knew that that's where the presence of God was. And so what is Peter saying? He's saying the presence of God, the most important place on earth, is right here. It's when you and me and fellow believers gather together that we become the temple of God. Friends, this is holy ground when we come together. I think we often underestimate what exactly is going on when we gather together as the people of God. This is the most important place on earth. 
Now, there are a few important things we need to know about this place. Um, and the first is that, and when I say this place, I guess I mean talking about the sort of spiritual house that we are becoming and become as we, as we join together. And the first is that Jesus is the cornerstone. Amen. Jesus is the cornerstone. And the Bible says, it kind of uses this concept of a cornerstone saying that Jesus was a, a cornerstone that was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And it's drawing on this kind of understanding or this, this idea which would have been well known at the time, which was when a building was being built, the first and most important stone that needed to be found was the cornerstone that was put in at the chief corner or the kind of ultimate and most important edge of the building, and that was sunk deep down into the foundations, and it dictated where that building stood, it dictated its orientation, and it also was important because it meant that that was the kind of guiding line of which every stone was placed. And so Peter is saying here that in the church, here, right here in Westminster Chapel, the chief cornerstone is Christ himself. Amen. And part of the reason I find this so compelling is because of the person who writes this book. So the guy who writes it, his name is not originally Peter. He's originally called Simon. And there's this moment in, in the, the accounts in the New Testament where he has this revelation and he realizes who Jesus is. He realizes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in that moment, Jesus says to him and renames him from his original name, Simon, to Peter, and says, Peter, on you, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. And Peter, that word, translated back into the Greek is Petros, which means broadly rock, which translated back into the Aramaic is Cephas, meaning rock. And so Jesus renames Peter and says, you are the rock on which I build my church. But then what does Peter say to these churches in Asia Minor? He says, don't be confused. It's not me. I am not the cornerstone. He's recognized and come to this place of great humility and understanding that actually the chief cornerstone in every church is not a particular person or anyone in authority or anybody who's got any particular role to play. It is Jesus Christ himself. And God is the one who is building his church on the sure and unmovable foundation of Jesus. And it's important that we have that all the right way around in our minds. Because if you're anything like me, what begins to happen is your heart on this thing drifts and you begin to sometimes think that your role is a little bit more important or you begin to look to others who play an important role in our community and we begin to stand and take security and assurance and confidence in them. Now that may not always be a bad thing, but I do wanna ask us this morning, where is our ultimate foundation as Westminster Chapel? Are we finding it in Jesus Christ, the cornerstone? And one of the reasons I think this is so important is because Jesus is the one who can bear up and carry the pressure of church life. Because it's not always easy, and it's not always smooth, and there are bumps in the road, and as a church we are going through some of those bumps. But Jesus Christ is the one who can bear up the pressure. I think sometimes we think it's down to us if the worship isn't great this Sunday, then, you know, maybe, maybe the presence of God is not going to be here. 
Or if the lunch runs out, if we run out of food, oh my goodness, people are not going to come back to church. Or if our life group's not working the way we want it to work. It's up to us. It's up to us. We put this pressure on ourselves to be the ones who are trying to do the work that ultimately only God can do as the great builder on the foundation of Jesus. And I want to free us this morning because otherwise serving the church doesn't come with joy. It becomes this duty and this obligation and this weight and this burden that we bear. And it shouldn't be like that. It should be a joy. We should do it not out of duty, but out of joy and out of service and worship to God that we contribute, that we're involved in serving teams, that we welcome people at the back when they come in, that we help out in the cafe, that we do the tech, that we join a life group or lead a life group. It should be done out of joy and out of an overflow of gratitude, not duty, not obligation, not pressure, not because we think that we are the ones holding it all together. And so I want to remind us this morning not to stand afoot, one on the rock of Jesus and one on something else, one on making sure we're the right life group leader, one on making sure we're coming on a Sunday, one on making sure kids' ministry works. Now, don't get me wrong, these are all great and good things, and we should be engaged and we should be doing them, but we we should be firmly rooted on one stone, Jesus Christ. I'm glad I've got one or two amens. (laughs) And maybe you're here and you haven't put your faith in Christ. And maybe you're feeling like your world is a little bit shaky, that the stones underneath you are moving. And I want to say, put your faith and your trust in Jesus. The promise of the scripture is that those who believe in him will not be put to shame. He is your sure foundation. He is the thing that you're searching for. And he values you. You are precious to him. So if we move on, if Jesus is the cornerstone of our spiritual house that we are together, what are we? I think this scripture says that we are the living stones. Jesus is the cornerstone and we are the the living stones that come together. Now to try and bring this to life, I thought I would talk about the famous um, Catholic church in Barcelona called the Sagrada Familia. I'm not sure if you've had the chance to visit, but the unique thing about the Sagrada Familia is that they have been building it for over a hundred years. It started in 1882, and now, 140 years later, it is still being built. Famous architect Anthony Gaudi had this idea of this design that he wanted to, of how the cathedral should look or the church should look, and people have been painstakingly trying to follow that design, and there have been moments where building has paused, and there have been debates around what it should all look like, but they're trying to create this idea and this design of Gaudi's from many, many years before. And so here are a few pictures just to bring it to life. So this is the Sagrada Familia 1905. You can see the kind of Part of it just starting to come together on the far side, a few kind of uh, towers going up. And then if you fast forward to the next picture, 1930, you can see those turrets and kind of towers on the right have gone up a little bit and buildings continuing. And if you go to the next one, this was it in 2005. You can see the progress. It's becoming this wonderful, beautiful building. But it's not complete, right? There's scaffolding, there's cranes, and that was the first time I visited the Sagrada Familia, was in 2005. And I remember getting to it and seeing it on the outside and being totally blown away by this 
kind of magnificence of this building and then went inside and when I went inside it was dusty and dirty and there was scaffolding and you couldn't really see everything you had to kind of weave your way through this building site and caught glimpses of what it might become and then if we fast forward in time to the next picture that's not the Sagrada Familia that's Benjamin my son <laughs> if you go back to, to, to Benjamin um, this was when we visited in 2022 him as a sort of I can't remember exactly how old he was, six months or so at the time. We walked in, and he was just amazed. He was staring up at the beauty of this inside of this building. And if you go to the next slide, you'll see what it looks like. It is like nothing else, if you have not visited, that you will have seen in terms of church buildings and architecture. This beautiful kind of glow of color coming through the windows that have been designed to sort of on the one side show the passion of Christ, this kind of red and, and, and yellow light coming through and this beautiful design that's all based on nature and tries to sort of imitate this forest going up. It is a fantastic building. And if you go into the next slide, this is what it looks like now on the outside. It is amazing. And I use that picture because it is a little bit like what is happening here. Firstly, because God is taking each of us as living stones to build us and bring us together, to make us the temple and the house of God. And the Old Testament tells us that it's not about the building, right? The beauty of this church has got nothing to do with the physical place in which we meet. It's got to do with you and me and all of us coming together, bringing the gifts and the talents, the things that are valued and precious to God, and playing our role as a church community, and that in this place, God's presence will be here. Amen. What is more beautiful than meeting the King of Kings, the God, the one who created us, our, our, our maker? The Sagrada Familia is beautiful, but it is not the same as the beauty of the church. And so us coming together in Christ become the very dwelling place of God. I think the thing that's important in this illustration is that we're not just stones, we're living stones. And what that means is we have a tendency to roll ourselves out of position, right? God puts us in one place and we want to roll out a little bit. And actually we need to cooperate with God, Michael Eaton says on this passage. That's our role in this place, is to, to figure out what will God have us do in the church? And what is our role and what do we play and how do we make sure that we stay rooted firmly on the foundation of Jesus Christ, our cornerstone? And when we do that, we become this dwelling place of God. And in Ephesians, a similar scripture um, says that, talks about the church as being fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, and that in Him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. What a great honor we have as the church. That's why Kelvin talks about this as the honor. That the place that, think about how many people how many different civilizations across all of history have been searching for purpose and meaning, have been looking for enlightenment, have been carrying out these pilgrimages to go and to find God, and yet He's here. Amen. He is here. Amen. God, by the power of His Spirit, is here in His church. Amen. 
And there is no more beautiful place in the world, there is no more important place for us to be than with the people of God. And so what a wonderful privilege to come, to join together as God's people. Now that brings us to the end of the spiritual house bit. Now I hope you're not too metaphored out at this point because there's another one coming, I'm afraid. <laughs> Peter goes on to mix his, his metaphors and says that we are not only these living stones in the, in the spiritual house of God, but we are also a holy priesthood. And this is the second honor that we have as the church. We are becoming, when we come together, we have been made a holy priesthood. I mentioned at the beginning the kind of king being set apart. We have been set apart as a holy priesthood, as a people of God to offer service to him. So in the spiritual house, we're not only the building, but we are also the priests that are operating within it to bring praise and worship to God. And what does he sort of mean, Peter? I think it's important that we get the context a little bit on exactly what these priests were all about in the Old Testament. Well, ideally, or kind of at the beginning, there's this promise that all of us are to be the priesthood, or all of the, the chosen people of God. But the people of God are not that good at being obedient. And so what ends up happening is that we have this subset of the Jewish people called kind of the Levites, and really them together with Aaron, Moses' brother, and Aaron's sons. And they fulfill a critical role in the life of the Jewish people. Because they have been, or they are consecrated and set apart for this act of service in the Old Testament temple. So, whenever anything happened that had to do with spirituality, or meeting with God, or being in the presence of God, it had to happen with the priests. The priests were the mediators. They were the representatives of the people to God, and of God back to the people. And so they were core to the spiritual vitality of the Jews. And so what Peter is saying, and in fact, sorry, one other thing to just point out is that they, part of this role that they played is that they were the ones who could enter into the presence of God because they had been spiritually set apart. And so Peter is saying that we enjoy similar priestly privileges, that we are a holy priesthood. And there's two of them that I wanted to highlight. The first is that we have assured access to the most holy place, assured access to the most holy place. Amen. So in the Old Testament sort of temple, there would have been the, this idea of this most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant, which contained God's presence, had been placed. And to kind of separate the people from that, there would have been two veils or curtains that would have been put in place. And the only person who could go in to the very center of the, of the temple to where the presence of God really dwelt was the high priest who could do it once a year for a very clear and important purpose, which was to offer atonement for the sins of the people of Israel, to keep God kind of happy, as it were, and to offer something in exchange for their lack of obedience. And so that was the sacrifice, and that was this critical role. And what we read about is that, in fact, two of Aaron's sons die when they try to go into the most holy place, and they kind of do it unauthorized, as it were, where you know, God had not allowed them in. And God says to Aaron, or via Moses, don't come in to the holy place at any time. Don't come in, unless or in case you die. The consequences were severe. 
And why were they so severe? Well, because God is the creator and author of everything. He is completely good, completely pure. There is nothing in him that is in any way not good and holy. He is completely set apart. And so anything that comes into that presence needs to be consecrated, needs to be made pure to be able to come in there. And so there was this whole act of ritual cleansing that the high priest would go and kind of go through in order to come into this most holy place once a year. Now, we read in the book of Hebrews that it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so it was all because of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He is also the ultimate high priest. That he was the sacrifice once and for all that you and I, as the church, can enter into the most holy place. The privilege that was reserved for one person amongst the Jewish people for one day of the year is now ours. At any point, at any time, that we get access to the most sacred place and presence of God because of Jesus. And so we read about in the New Testament that this veil in the temple was torn in two when Jesus was sacrificed and at his death. And so he has opened this way. And so we come with confidence and assurance because we know it's not about us. I think we often have this problem, don't we? We come to church and we think, well, I'm not sure if I really can go to church or join life group because my life doesn't always look quite the way that it should. We want to clean ourselves up a little bit and make sure we're doing the right things. Or we think about, oh, I haven't really had such a great week. I haven't spent as much time with God as I would want to. So therefore, I've got to kind of do something first before I can enter into His presence. Now, there is an act of us turning and repenting if we need to repent. But I think too often, we put the pressure on ourselves. We think that our access to God is because of us and what we do, and it's not. We have confidence to come boldly before the throne of God because of Jesus. And so I want to raise our expectation, church. When we come to church, we are coming to the most sacred place on earth, the most sacred part of the sanctuary because of everything that Jesus has done. And that we have access to God and His very presence. And so we should expect the most intimate realms of spirituality right here in our church when we come together. And the second thing that I want to point out about these being a holy priesthood is that we have assured acceptance of our sacrifice. So just to rewind, I mentioned two of of Aaron's sons who went into the most holy place, who offered a sacrifice which was not authorized by God and therefore not accepted, and they died. Now what we are told here is that our sacrifice is acceptable. But this is a bit confusing, right? Because I've just said that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. So why do we need to actually make sacrifices? What are we talking about here? And I think what Peter is getting at is he's getting at these sacrifices spiritual sacrifices, as he calls them. 
There's no need for us anymore to go and to sacrifice any animals. Jesus has done it all. And so our sacrifices that we bring are spiritual, but they're also accepted because of Jesus. And the sacrifices, I think, are two things. The first is that it is ourselves. In the Old Testament, they got away with animals. <laughs> In the New Testament, we sacrifice ourselves. Romans 12 says, Therefore, by the mercies of God, present yourselves as living sacrifices. And that's the call of Jesus. The call to follow Him, to give up our lives, to bear up our cross, to follow Him. And this is the great spiritual sacrifice, is that it's a life of obedience to God. It's a life where we live for Him, where we are the great sacrifice, and we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And the second sacrifice, I think, is a sacrifice of praise that we offer. In that scripture that we uh, read in Peter, it says, You are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Proclaim the excellencies. Praise God for what He has done, that as a people of God, if we've put our faith and our trust in Christ, that we are no longer in darkness. We have been transferred into God's marvelous light. Amen. And this is the kind of honor of our exile. We're not in darkness anymore. We're in light. We live with God as our King, the one who gives us instruction, the one who guides us, who leads us, who cherishes us in the role that we play in His church. We have been transformed into the kingdom or transferred into the kingdom of light. And we should declare and proclaim these excellencies. Now the trouble is that it's not always easy to do that. And I think that's why Peter writes this to the church to encourage them. They're beginning to come under pressure. They're beginning to take or kind of suffer persecution for their faith. And I think that leads us sometimes to not always want to praise God or not always find it easy because we have questions about God and is He good and where is He and all of these things. And I want to encourage us this morning that it's okay to have those questions. And we do need to work them through, but actually it shouldn't stop us from praising God. And that's why sometimes it is a sacrifice. We don't always feel like it. We don't always have it all figured out. But that's the spiritual sacrifice which God is calling us to make. And it's important when we get together as a church, that we bring words of encouragement, that we sing songs, that we, we, we let this you know, pro proclamation of His excellencies happen in this place. It's part of what it means to be the church. And there are many other spiritual sacrifices we could think about. The prayers that we pray, the acts of charity, our giving, our looking after the poor, after the marginalized, our love for others. So many of these things are our spiritual sacrifices. And the thing is, is that they are acceptable and pleasing to God. I want to sort of bring to a close by reading a quote from John Kelvin. You guys have got a lot of John Kelvin, um, but you'll get him in black and white this time. I thought I'd mix it up. Um, and if I could ask the band to come up, I want to just read what John Kelvin says about the acceptability of our sacrifices. He says, but the apostle Peter adds, through Jesus Christ, 
And so there is never found in our sacrifices and what we bring such purity that they are of themselves acceptable to God. Our self-denial is never entire and complete. (coughs) Our prayers are never so sincere as they ought to be. We are never so zealous and diligent in doing good, but that our works are imperfect and mingled with many vices. And that's true, right? And we know it often. Our prayers don't always feel the way that they should. We don't always feel that we've got the power. Maybe we don't always pray as much as we should. They are mingled with many vices. But this is the good part. He says, nevertheless, Christ procures favor on them. Christ procures favor on them. Then Peter here obviates that want of faith which we have respecting the acceptableness of our works when he says that they are accepted, not for merit of their own excellency, but through Christ. And it ought to kindle the more, the more, ought to kindle the more the ardor of our efforts when we hear that God deals so indulgently with us, that in Christ He sets a value on our works which in themselves deserve nothing. And so whatever you bring to us as a community, no matter how big, how small, no matter how much faith, how little faith, no matter how perfect or not perfect, all of these things God values, that they confer the blessing and the favor of God, not because of anything we do, but because of Christ. It is the great thing that we have, the privilege that we have, that whatever we do and we bring to God in in service to Him, no matter how imperfect it is, God will look down on that and be pleased. So I want to invite us to stand. We're going to go into worship. And as as a last encouragement to stir us up, I want to read piece of scripture which uh, talks about what happened in the Old Testament when the building of the temple was complete and when the Ark of the Covenant was brought in and what happened when the priests began to praise God. Because I think it will help us raise our expectation for what should happen now as we begin to worship God. And maybe close your eyes. This is what it says. Thus, all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever, The house of the Lord, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And God, that is our prayer that as we praise you, as we offer the sacrifice of praise that you would descend in this place, that we would know your glory, Lord, that you would make it real in all of our hearts that this is the privilege and honor of being your people, that what generations have been searching for is found right here and right now, Lord, 
It's true, God. It is true, Father. And so I pray, won't you, won't you make that alive to us now? Come and pour out your presence on us, Lord. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.